Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Before we begin, I want to remind you there are other ways to get involved with this Wealth Formula thing. First of all, there's a website called wealthformula.com. Lots of resources for you to check out there, including uh, my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which I'm actually working on a new one that I think is going to be better. But this is sort of a Wealth 1.0 cash flow type book that you can certainly, if you're uh, just getting started, download that uh, there. You can also text 44222 and type in Wealth Formula One Word and get that uh, conveniently to your smartphone. We also have the Wealth Formula Network, which is a course, and uh, the course sort of sets the basis for what ends up being our community, uh, the network that we call Wealth Formula Network. We have bi-weekly investor-focused calls via Zoom video. And we also have a Facebook group that's private. We also have another portal as well. So check that out if you're interested, wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, now, as far as today's show, let me just say that, listen, I am a doctor, right? But Wealth Formula is not a doctor podcast. Sure, uh, we, were, we had this meetup in Dallas a week or so ago. And probably about 30 or 40% of my accredited investor group, which, you know, most of the people who came to uh, the Dallas event were part of the accredited investor group too. It's made up of 30 or 40% probably physicians, dentists, uh, veterinarians, you know, healthcare types. But that just happens to be the byproduct, I think, of my professional past. That is, people with common background tend to flock together. I think that's the case um, because it's certainly not what I'm trying to do. All I'm doing is saying what's on my mind. And the fact that 30 to 40% of the group is physicians and dentists, et cetera, et cetera, well, that's fine with me. I love working with other healthcare types. But I'll tell you what, I don't ever want to approach them cold because you see, when I first set out to do this show, I was going to make it about doctors. It made sense to carve out that niche at the time to me, right? That was like, what, maybe four years ago or whatever, three years ago. Uh, no one else was really filling that vacuum. Um, of course, now there's some influencers in that space. They mostly have, you know, they're talking about ETFs and 4% rule and living like a resident and all these things that sound really fun to me. Um, but in the end, what kept me away from the doctor uh, approach to a show was that most physicians, frankly, are too difficult to convince of anything other than conventional financial wisdom and, frankly, other bad ideas. You know, the voices that have emerged as influencers, like I said, they're uh, are primarily talking about ETFs, living like a resident, which, of course, is at, at odds with my real asset, you know, real estate, things like that, abundance-focused approach. In other words, I don't want to live like a resident. I lived like a resident before. Why would I want to live like a resident? Just so I can save up for the last 10 years of my life to finally like live? I mean, that is so crazy to me to, to say things like that and actually be serious. It's downright ludicrous. Um, but, you know, I guess it's not for some people, right? I mean, I guess it's not because otherwise people wouldn't be saying it and following it. 
Anyway, so going back to the whole doctor thing, back when I lived in Chicago, I tried to reach out to some you know doctors locally a few times um, because they were my neighbors and stuff. You know, I had one neighbor who was in neurosurgeon. He was making millions of bucks. And, you know, he was a nice guy, kind of manic. He was dumping his money into, uh, you know, whatever his financial advisor told him to do. He had no idea what he was invested in. And the other thing that he did is like, his idea of alternative investing in assets was investing in medical device companies. And the way that he would pick these were, for the most part, randomly, uh, you know, companies that came to his office, came to the OR and said, hey, we got this idea. What do you think? Well, listen, not to be too negative about medical device opportunities. However, I should say that I have never, ever, ever seen a doctor invest in a medical device company and make millions like they typically think they're going to. Why? Well, a good idea only goes so far, right? So you're sitting in the OR, you think, well, that's a really good idea. You also have to have a demand for the product. And I know you're sitting there doing some esoteric procedure and it seems like there's a good way to do this, but then, hey, there's only about, you know, 500 of those done per year. So that's not going to be a very good business, right? And then you also need a very good team to implement that plan and to pull the whole thing off. And while those great opportunities do exist, sure they exist, right? I mean, the medical, you know, device and medical, you know, pharmaceutical industry, they make tons of money. But most individual doctors never see the really good ones because the smart investors, via, say, venture capital, well, they get to them first. And most medical device startups come to doctors when they are pretty much bust to begin with and after everyone else had said no. And that's just the reality of it. But that's your typical doctor investing. Send it to the wealth advisor or spend it on an idea that will never, ever take off. It's painful to watch. But I have to tell you, and again, this is why I don't do a doctor show, it's even more painful to try to intervene and to talk some sense into people. So now, you know, I just work with the doctors who, alongside with everybody else, the non-physicians, you know, find me and they resonate with my message um, and are open to another approach to personal finance that actually, you know, you use your brain and you say, hey, that makes sense. And I see some track records here. Let's try that. You know, I should point out that, as I've said before, I don't think it's a bad thing to invest in high risk, high reward type investments. You know, and that's basically what these kinds of, you know, uh, medical device companies are. You use a small portion of your portfolio, say you do five to 10 percent, depending on how much you make. Uh, however, there's just a smarter way to do that. I mean, you still need uh, even if you're going to do that and it's highly risky stuff, you still would be a good uh, you would still be good uh, to, you know, do a little bit more information hunting, uh, trying to find groups that are good, dig into it a little bit more, uh, you know, be smart about your allocations, etc. cetera. Uh, it is even smarter, uh, potentially, if you find a good team that's doing this kind of stuff and you invest with them alongside. Because, you know, venture capital is certainly one approach uh, to asymmetric risk um, that is worth considering. And that's, you know, that's the type of thing where I'm talking about coming alongside of somebody or uh, some kind of group. And if you find the right group with whom you, uh, you know, with whom to invest, you might have an opportunity to achieve those kinds of considerable returns 
that an asymmetric risk fund might yield. Now, the idea there is that you put your money in some competent hands to spread over multiple opportunities. Some of them might go bust and some of them might result in, who knows, 10x outcomes, things like that. Now, I personally have not invested in any venture capital myself, but I would do that before I ever considered investing in a medical company that just came knocking at my door. And so that's why I want to do this, because this show, because even though uh, asymmetric risk has you know, a little bit higher risk, obviously, it's asymmetric. There is a strategy to it. There's a strategy that will help you to optimize those outcomes. So anyway, to help us learn about venture capital and to see if it might be right for you, this week's Wealth Formula podcast features Vanessa Bartram of Zora Ventures, and we'll be talking to her right after we come back from these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest in Wealth Formula podcast is Vanessa Bartram. She is the managing partner of Zora. Zora is a Tel Aviv-based fund that backs exceptional Israeli teams who will become the next global leaders in impact tech. Uh, Vanessa began her career in investment banking in Mexico City, later founding the Miami Impact company WorkSquare, which she grew to $25 million in revenue. Uh, she holds an MBA from Harvard, a BA from Princeton, and is a Heritage Fellow uh, with the Wexner Foundation. And now, of course, the next step for most uh, Harvard graduates is to go to the Wealth Formula podcast for an interview. <laughs> what, <laughs> welcome to the show, Vanessa. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. So let me start out a little bit just defining some things. Uh, what you guys and you, what you're involved in is something called Impact Tech. What is Impact Tech and how did you get involved in this space? Sure. So impact investing is a, a broad and messy term. I think we're getting a little bit better at defining the space. But effectively, what investors who are impact investors are looking for is to have some quantified, measurable, trackable um, impact on a social or environmental outcome um, in addition to, you know, strong financial return. At this stage, I think about 90% of impact investors say they're looking for market rate of returns. So this doesn't mean that you want to, you know, save the whales and make less money. Um, it's figuring out how to make the same amount of money that any other venture fund would um, or any other tech company would um, while also being able to track, you know, tons of carbon, um, you know, um, diverted or, you know, tons of food waste diverted from landfill, something like that. Yeah. So give me some examples of, of some of the impact, uh, some of the impact tech companies out there that maybe people might have heard of just to get a bitter, a little bit better sense of what that, that sort of company looks like. Sure. So I'll give you a sense, you know, some of the companies that we're working with are working on everything from um, one company does data analytics for satellite radar data, um, and they're working specifically in the forestry industry. So for us, you know, for them, they're looking to sell, you know, operational insights to forest managers about how to grow their forest better. Um, but for us, when we looked at this, it was really a carbon emissions play that we realized that we could help improve the carbon stock um, you know, in the, because of the, because of the intervention that they had. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Another of our companies now is a company called Wasteless. You know, they're working on um, 
the problem of supermarket food waste. So that 30 to 40% of perishable products in supermarkets are thrown away right now. Um, and it's about 1% of revenue for supermarkets. So by being able to introduce a dynamic pricing that's integrated with the, you know, POS software in the, in the supermarket, they can incentivize customers to buy a, the cottage cheese that's expiring five days sooner rather than the one that's going to expire in three weeks. Um, and that way, you know, for them, it's uh, for the supermarkets, it has potential to, to up their margins, which are very tight already by, you know, 30 to 40%. Got it. So, um, you know, one of the things, again, going back to basics and defining things, you mentioned uh, Zora is a, it, it's a fund, but it's a, it's a venture capital fund. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So for some of, you know, as as you may or may not know, um, most of us in this group and our investor group, we're just a bunch of dumb real estate investors. So um, (laughs) can you explain the difference? Um, You know, this uh, this is sort of new for, I think, a lot of people. What's the difference between a venture capital fund and, say, you know, private equity or, say, angel investing? So what how do you how are those defined? Sure. So venture capital, angel investing, private equity, they're all the same thing in that you're buying some percentage of a private company's equity as opposed to buying company on on the public market, um, like the New York Stock Exchange. So in all of these, you know, as an investor, you're buying some shares of a private company. Those different phases typically are just what phase the company is in and what size the company is. So an angel investor is going to be the first capital that goes into, you know, a startup or other company. Um, an angel may be putting in anywhere from, you know, 10, 5,000, 10,000, 25,000 into a company. Um, venture capital typically is the first sort of institutional round of a company's fundraise. Um, so they'll be putting in anywhere from maybe a few hundred thousand to several million. Private equity tends to be what's called the growth stage when companies are already established um, and they're just looking to expand operations. Got it. Got it. So that's helpful. So in general, um, you know, part of it is determining, um, you know, how big the company is, where you are in. And presumably there's uh, because of that, there's different uh, levels of risk reward profiles uh, based on those kind of different time uh, time horizons for uh, for business investment. Right. Absolutely. So in terms of venture, what -hmm. is the typical time horizon, you know, for this kind of thing where say, say you've got investors who are in a fund and, you know, what do you typically, you know, in, in, in a venture fund, do you expect like a five years, 10 years, uh, you know, some level of, of uh, illiquidity during that period of time? Mm-hmm. It's a great question, um, and I love back that you're that you're based and and what you usually talk about is residential, you know, multifamily. Um, I came from a background of family that that's our family business. Um, so you know, about ninety percent of my net assets are are in multifamily. Oh, good. <laughs> you know, residential residential real estate. So everything you say, I you know, I I I think is absolutely spot on. Um, venture capital, you know, I tell everyone, whether it's you're an angel investor, even up to private equity, it's an extremely risky asset class. Um, this is something that I put in that bucket of a five to 10%, um, looking for a different uncorrelated, um, you know, asymmetrical kind of return. Uh Um, so it's important to remember that piece when we're talking about the risk. 
Um, because then the risk of a venture capitalist becomes, you know, we have this extremely risky asset class. What's everything we can do to mitigate that risk and to do this as strategically and thoughtfully as we can. Um, but to answer your question, so a typical, and it's illiquid is another, another piece of this. Um, so a typical venture investment um, is a five to seven year hold. So typically a fund is going to spend about two to three years deploying the capital that they raise. So say someone raises a $10 million fund, um, it'll take them two years to sort of spend that money and make those investments. Um, they then hold it for five to seven years, and then that harvesting period is another two to three years. So a, a typical venture capital fund has a, has a shelf life of, of 10 years, which can be a, a daunting hold period for, for some investors. Yeah, so in, in terms of what that looks like, um, during that period of time, there's you know, there's often zero liquidity. So, I mean, again, going back to the parallel of, of multifamily real estate, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we typically are looking at some uh, dividends or distributions, you know, quarterly or even potentially yearly or whatever. But this is something that you got to say, okay, you know what? Um, this is your asymmetric risk play. Okay. You bought Bitcoin and maybe you want to you know, invest in, in this as well. And you're just going to forget about it. And if you lose it, you lose it. If, if one day you wake up and somebody says you made, you know, 500% on your money, then that's kind of what, what this is, right? Um, absolutely. And, and listen, it, it can be done far more strategically. Um, and that's, that's what <laughs> right. we're there to, to right. do. Um, right. but yes, it absolutely has an element of risk and it attracts people who are entrepreneurs and, it's uh, you know, we can talk a little bit more about the economics of it, but it's absolutely a home run business. Right. You know, you're you're looking to have a portfolio and have those one or two, you know, big wins in there. Right. And then in terms of in terms of uh, a home run, what is a home run in in venture um, uh, language? Is that like a 10 like a you know, is that like a 10 X or is that a five? I mean, I'm just curious. Again, these may be somewhat simplistic, but most people probably in this, um, in this audience probably don't really understand, um, you know, what, what kind of metrics, financial metrics that again, not talking about specifically your fund as, you know, mm -hmm. but just in general for venture, like what, if you're, if you're talking about smaller allocations, what are the typical targets? Like what's a win? What's a, what's a mm -hmm. grand slam and what is, you know, kind of a loss. <laughs> so, you're, you're, you're testing my sports metaphor here. This yeah, is, yeah. This is right, right, right. But, but okay, I, I can play. I can play. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so typically a fund, you know, a fund that has, is it in sort of 90th percentile, um, is going to return 3x net of fees to its investors. Um, so if you have a $100 million fund, that means you're returning maybe $350 million. Um, 50 million are, you know, fees, other expenses, and your investors end up in their pocket with 3x what they put in. Got it. Um, so that's how, that's how you get into the top decile of funds. Um, you know, that's the same kind of numbers that we're looking to do. But then you're, you're going down to the portfolio level and you assume each fund is invested in maybe, you know, 10 to 20 companies. Um, so if we say that's 10 companies, you're going to make the assumption, um, that five of those companies fail totally. Um, you know, three of those companies you'll have like a small return on, and that's maybe two to three times your capital. Um, one of those companies you'll have a medium return, which is maybe a five to 10. 
Um, and one of those companies, you want to have a real outsized return that would be upwards of a 10, uh, somewhere a 20 to 30 kind of X. Right. Right. Got it. And uh, from a, um, you know, again, uh, understanding how I'm approaching this from real estate, is there any sort of tax advantages to venture capital investing? Not in this, you know, we don't have obviously the, the depreciation yeah, yeah. that you would have right. in real estate. Right, right. Unfortunately. Um, no, most everything as an investor, you're buying into a limited partnership. So you own a part of a pass-through entity. Right. Um, you own a percentage of that LP. And then from that, you receive a K-1 and your gains are, are you know, long-term capital gains. So got somewhere it. between 15 and 20%. Okay, got it. Okay, so let's talk uh, specifically about Zora. Okay, um, so when was Zora founded? Um, are you one of the founders? And you know, tell us a little bit about the story of the company. Sure, um, I am. I am the sole founder um, and general partner. Um, I moved to Israel about six years ago um, and started investing mm. a few years after. Um, and again, this was uh, I had always grown up with this idea of wanting to sort of do well, do good while also doing well. Um, this came from, you know, being second generation immigrant family, um, that after running a series of different small businesses, you know, found multifamily real estate and was able to grow, you know, a reasonable amount of wealth there. Um, and I think as a, as a child, my parents did a good job of pointing out all of the things that I got to do that was not what an average child gets to do, whether that was going to summer camp or my education at a private school or studying abroad. Um, so I think I always had sort of this question of how do people acquire wealth? How is it that once people have wealth, they seem to be able to make more wealth more quickly? Um, and what can we do as a society to sort of make sure that other people have access to more wealth, whether that's through financial education um, or starting businesses, whatever that is. Um, so that was sort of my, my, you know, social, social justice lens coming into this world. Um, but started my career in investment banking, um, and really loved the transaction side and the deal making side. Um, I was working in Mexico city. We're helping mostly third, fourth generation companies sell themselves to foreign acquirers. Um, so going through the valuation and through the exit with them. Um, and after, after doing that, um, moved to Boston to do my MBA at Harvard. Um, realized I was an entrepreneur, unfortunately, while there. Yeah. Um, moved down to Miami, started a company there doing financial education with low-income, um, you know, bussers, janitors, dishwashers um, as a sort of job placement HR agency at Workswear. Um, and after running that business for a few years, <clears throat> loved what I was doing, did not love the industry, and wanted the opportunity to work with more mission-aligned entrepreneurs at a strategic level. Um, by chance, I came across Israel and started learning more about Israel. Um, I was just blown away about what a good fit it was for someone who wanted to do early stage tech investing, you know, with, uh, with a social environmental focus. Why, um, why is that? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, uh, you know, Israel's, um, why Israel was such a big uh, part of the, you know, uh, was a good target for your, your venture fund. For sure, for sure. So, you know, first off, we have about 6,400 startups in Israel, um, and about 40% of those have um, some social environmental sort of impact in what they're doing. 
So we have about 600 startups each in agricultural technologies, in digital health, in medical devices, in clean tech. Um, we have exciting new sectors coming up um, like food tech and um, and education and water technology all have 250, 300 um, companies between them. So really strong pipelines. I identified about you know 2,400 companies in Israel that were mission oriented in the way we were looking for. Um, and among those, about 700 that were relevant in stage for us, which is sort of pre-seed and seed and series A. Um, and I think Israel's really benefited, um, you know, it's a, the largest tech hub outside of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, it has the highest number of engineers and scientists per capita in the world. Uh, the government strongly supports R&D, um, you know, to the tune of about $400 million per year for, for small startups. Um, the companies here all have a strong B2B focus from day one because yeah. our, you know, our population is only 8 million people. You automatically need to be selling abroad. Right. Um, so that's a, that's a given. Um, you know, we have over 300 multinational companies that have a, a presence here, whether it's a venture fund or a scout for technology. Um, so from day one, startups are working with these multinationals to sort of figure out the product market fit. Um, and, and, the, and the best reason, um, you know, also the valuations here are far more reasonable. You know, it's not hard to be more reasonable than what we're seeing in the U.S. venture market okay. right now. It's craziness. Yeah. Um, okay. but we have far more reasonable valuations um, and our entrepreneurs tend to do about twice as much with the same amount of capital. That's great. Okay, got it. Okay, so you go to Israel, you set up shop, and uh, when was that? This was 2014 Uh that I moved here um, and started looking for deals on my own, sort of as an angel that I could follow and then put some some money in. Um, And I would find deals, you know, this is a this is a dating before you get married kind of thing. Spend a year to two years, sort of following coaching these companies um, before deciding which ones to go with. Um, I would put in you know a small amount of capital personally, put together a twenty five page diligence report, and bring that to investors primarily in the U S. where my network is, and have them invest alongside me for a typical you know venture capital fee. Got it. Got it. Um, so, um, what's happened since 2014? So we've invested in five companies as part of our demo portfolio. And that was the, the sort of one by one, you know, each, each investment we did was a special purpose vehicle with different investors. Um, and then it came time to put together a small fund. Um, so we're working on that now. Uh, we've made our first two investments and have our third under diligence. Um, and we're really looking to be the, the best of Israeli impact tech fund. Got it. And so is it too early to have any, I mean, I guess 2014 and now is it too early to have any divestments or at this point? So yeah. Far? So our first investments were actually like started in 2016. Okay, uh, we've it. had one, we've had one exit so far. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, which was, which was fun. And to use your sports metaphor, I'd say it was a double, you know, not yeah. a, not a home run. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was great to be able to send some money back to investors. Um, and it was, I think, emblematic of the challenge that we see in Israel, which, you know, we have great product and technology and the challenge is frequently knowing how to commercialize and and get that to market, you know, the best way. So this company was approached by, um, the largest 
Japanese education publisher um, because they wanted to expand them the product through Asia. Um, so the, the the team decided to go with that and have them distribute for them. So let's go back again to sort of your buy box. So what did, when you're when you guys at Zora are looking at companies, what are some of the characteristics that might be somewhat unique to to you and your you know in terms of metrics things like that what do you, what are you looking at sure we're looking first of all we're looking at the niche of seed stage um, in the past about five years since 2015 most venture capital funds have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger um, with the reasonable idea that if you're going to make an investment and spend the time doing due diligence you might as well invest more money at a later stage um, and have more fees and more, you know, success fee from the time that you spent on that. What happens is there's a real vacuum at sort of seed stage. Um, and for us, seed stage is when a, when a tech company is raising about a um, million to $2 million. Um, they're pre-revenue. Um, they, what we're looking for is that they have some significant partnership with a major corporation um, that might be an unpaid pilot, a paid pilot. It might be, you know, a joint project in developing a product together. Um, but we want to see that the company has ability to access the kind of the kind of large scale multinationals that they're going to need to be selling to. Um, for us, we're looking at at seed stage. We're looking at valuations of about four to five million dollars pre money, um, or about a you know five and a half six million dollar valuation after the round is closed um, and that allows us to buy about a little over five percent interest in the company um, so that's you know we're writing initial checks of about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars on average which means we're looking for other strong co-investors in that round we want other people with deep pockets with sector expertise that are also going to come in have skin in the game and help us grow that company um, I would say the other things we're looking for, we're looking for short time to monetization. So anything that we think is going to have a long regulatory cycle, anything beyond FDA class one, we won't even look at. Um, there's a lot of the clean tech here that becomes problematic for us because it's the time horizon is too long or it's too capital intensive. Um, so we're looking for companies that can monetize in the next, you know, two years minimum. Yeah. Yeah, got it, got it. And presume, and of course, those those uh, monetization. I mean, that money is all going back in the business. Just to be clear, it's not <clears throat> distribute or anything. Um, so, um, so basically, from from the standpoint, if these investments are relatively small, right, three hundred, three hundred fifty thousand, like you're saying. So, for um, a venture fund, is there a lot of variability in terms of minimum investment for the actual investors in the fund? I mean, are they, is it, you know. Usually, a, and you don't have to talk about your fund, I know, but 25, 50, 100,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in general, do you have to, um, um, you know, is there, are these, are, are these kinds of things sort of all over the place or what? Um, they, they are. And I would say increasingly so and, and for the better. Um, typically, in a, in a fund that's maybe a $25 million fund, I think traditionally they're going to have a minimum that's a $250,000 or a $500,000 um, that's payable over you know a few years of the investment period. 
Um, you know, one interesting trend we've been seeing in the past few years is sort of the, the better access to startup investments through crowdfunding platforms. There's, um, you know, a large one in Israel called Our Crowd um, that I think has invested over, you know, maybe $300 million in the past few years in startups. Um, the one challenge, you know, it's a real balance with sort of the making um, venture capital, which, you know, in my mind is a terrible industry. It's, you know, been opaque. It's, you know, people are running off with all sorts of crazy fees. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, mismatching of incentives between investors and the fund managers. Um, so I'm not at all a fan of, of the industry as it is. Um, but on the flip side, you know, bringing the model to a more retail level, I think can also be scary because investors are missing that diversification. Um, I see investors, you know, coming here and, you know, putting money in one startup that they find that the guy seems nice. Um, and statistically speaking, you're better off going to Vegas and, you know, putting it on, on red 10. Um, so that's one piece. The, the diversification piece is another that's really challenging. You know, like we were talking about before, even the best angel investors, the best VCs don't know for a while which of the 10 is going to be the home run and which is going to be, you know, one of the five that, that, that fail. Um, so that's another piece of it. And the third thing I'd say is that, um, you know, whether it's an equity crowdfunding platform or even like a local angel group, it's really hard to get the best deal access. So again, this is a, this is a game of home runs. Um, you need to have access to the absolute best entrepreneurs and deals you can find. Um, and, you know, nine times out of 10, those best deals, different VC funds have already, you know, are mm -hmm. fighting for allocation in those deals before any crowdfunding platform or any angel group would ever see them. So that's probably one of the reasons being in Tel Aviv is also advantageous as well, right? I mean, I would imagine it's probably a little bit less competitive compared to the Silicon Valley um, venture uh, targets. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we're really, we're really strict about staying in seed stage right. because at that phase, when an entrepreneur is raising about a million, a million and a half dollars, they're shopping locally for investors. They're not taking the time to go abroad. Once they get to their series A, when they're looking for three to 5 million, you know, they're going to New York, they're going to Silicon Valley and suddenly the valuation is yeah. the same as it is in Silicon Valley, New York. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, my, my colleague Brian Steinberg and I were joking about one startup that we saw that we thought was really interesting. It had a 4 million pre-money valuation. They were invited to participate in Y Combinator um, mm -hmm. in the Valley. And two months later, after they finished the program, the 4 million pre-money valuation was now 9 million pre-money. Yeah. Um, and now, if you you're know, in that as an investor at that point, it really doesn't really make any difference to you until there's some sort of liquidity event, right? I mean, that's not not that that's a. I mean, that's great to know, right? I mean, it just increased your net worth, but um, but is there any you know what happens at the investor level when that happens? Well, so that was one, for instance, we didn't invest in because oh, yeah. we anticipated before they closed the round, the Got valuation it. was going to get a little ridiculous. Um. And so, you know, you're absolutely right. Being here locally, we get to take advantage of the better valuations before people go shop them abroad. Um, but, the, you know, if say you are in a deal, you know, where you come in at a reasonable valuation and other investors come in at what you think is a little bit crazy valuation, um, it's, it's fine, you know, on, 
on paper, you know, we yeah, have to yeah. remember all these values are all these values are on paper until you actually get your money back, um, which doesn't happen until acquisition or exit. Um, you know, on paper, you you doubled your money. Um, however, it can make it difficult for the company to raise additional capital, you know, yeah. at that valuation. Yeah, right. Got it. Well, um, you know, I want to give you a chance just to mention anything else that I haven't asked because this is clearly not my, um, you know, my, uh, my area, but I mean, if you're somebody who's interviewing you, what kinds of, is there something or anything I've missed that you think is useful to know about the space, about impact investing, or just, you know, just in general about Zora? Sure. I mean, I would, I would, I think it's important in this space. Um, if people are looking to get involved in venture, I would spend a lot of time doing diligence on different fund managers and checking them out. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, VC returns historically are nothing to get excited about. You know, I think on, on average, VC returns have been anywhere from sort of, you know, 13 to 15%. Um, which when you are counting in the liquidity, you know, and the risk profile over, you know, what a, a market benchmark would look like is not so exciting. When you're looking at a vis-a-vis real estate is not so exciting. Um, you know, smaller funds have had a bit of advantage. They're typically a 15 to 18% kind of IRR return. Um, but the real sort of secret in this industry is that there's a huge gap between the good fund managers and the bad fund managers. So the top quartile of fund managers have traditionally delivered, you know, low 20 IRRs, um, you know, 20 to 26 sort of IRR numbers, where the lowest quartile fund managers um, have been about 5 to 8%, which 5 to 8% to have your money locked up for, for 10 years is, you know, enough to make your stomach turn. Yeah, right. Um, so I think a huge piece of this is picking the right fund manager um, and doing the homework on that. Um, and that's really a question of who's going to have the best deal access. Um, for me, I, I really favor and admire funds that are run by entrepreneurs. Um, they've been there. They understand what it looks like. Um, they know how to add value in an operational sense. Um, you know, they need to have an ability to execute on a relatively short timeline. Um, and they need to have skin in the game. You know, I see some fund managers who have none of their own capital sort of invested in this, um, and they're happy making money off the management fees, whether the investments succeed or fail. Um, and that's obviously, obviously a no-go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been very, uh, very helpful and educational. Um, how can, uh, how can we learn more about what, uh, Zora does and, um, you know, website or any other kind of, uh, information we can potentially get? Sure. So we put together a special page for Wealth Formula listeners. Um, one of the Wealth Formula members, um, Jonah Mink, is a, a, an investor of a few years and a good friend. Um, and thanks to him, made the introduction. Yeah. Um, so glad to be with you today. Um, so if you go to our website, um, www.zora.vc slash Wealth Formula, um, there's a special page and we'll be having some more informational materials for Wealth Formula members. We'll also put that in the show notes. Vanessa, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula podcast today. Thank you, Beth. Great to be with you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So it is interesting to think about how this kind of venture capital thing fits into our portfolio 
Specifically, you know, uh, if you were listening, um, the idea of 3x return over 10 years, which sounds really good, and if you think about it, that's about 30% annualized return. And for those of you in our investor club, which if you're not part of and you're an accredited investor, you should seriously consider joining, you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, well, that's what, you know, our real estate syndication deals are averaging, right? 30% IRR with a lot less risk. And frankly, that's hard to argue with. And in fact, I did, I should say that I did bring that up with Vanessa offline uh, because I did think, well, gosh, people in the group are going to say, well, why, why would I invest in that if we're doing, you know, averaging 30% IRR on real estate already? Well, as it turns out, um, you know, talking to her goal is actually a lot more than 3x. You know, the top venture guys, uh, the top venture teams out there are delivering more than that, you know, 5x, 6x. So that's one thing to remember. The other argument that she made is that venture capital is not correlated with any markets. Now, certainly real estate does have cycles. It is correlated with other markets. Um, but of course, in, in return, there's a lot less risk. I think the bottom line is that this is a space where you are really getting some exposure uh, in hopes of, you know, hitting a home run again, right? Because in real estate, the reality is we may get our home run might be a 50% IRR, 60% IRR, but, you know, we're not really looking at the, you know, 10,000% return that is possible if you happen to identify and get in the, you know, some exposure to a unicorn. So again, it's more, um, you know, it's about, it's about getting exposure to something that could explode as something bigger. So again, it's more controlled asymmetric risk and a way to give yourself exposure to possibility that may not be there otherwise. Now that said, just like in real estate, outcomes are going to depend on team. And if you're interested in venture capital, that is what you really, really need to focus in on is due diligence on the team. What is it about this team that you like that's going to make it better than other venture capital groups out there. Now, I don't know Vanessa or her company well, so I can't go out there and say, hey, that's, you know, that's where you need to put your money. But they certainly, uh, you know, my initial conversations with them sound like a, a group that's worth looking into if you are interested in venture. And so certainly consider reaching out to, me, uh, to them when you have a chance. Now, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.